ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chickie Fitzgerald. Good morning, this is Chickie Fitzgerald, and we are going to talk about employee loyalty today. And I can tell you, uh, being in the early stage of starting up a company, there is nothing more important than having a team of people around you who you know you can trust and who you know want to come to work every day. And we have with us an expert on this topic, Heather Younger. And I am just so excited to have her here. And we're going to be talking about her book, The Seven Intuitive Laws of Employee Loyalty, fascinating truths about what it takes to create truly loyal and engaged employees. Heather, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Very exciting. Can we start out by you giving our listeners a, a thumbnail about you as an individual before we dive in to talking about business and talking about the book? Most people wonder um, why I am doing what I'm doing, given my background. I actually graduated from law school and practiced for a couple of years. And most people are like, why aren't you just you know, practicing law? I, <laughs> I decided early on that I didn't want to be pushing papers all the time and being law libraries. And I wanted to be around people. And I loved being uh, kind of genuine and real with people. So I did really well early on. And uh, after I left the practice of law, I went into kind of a sales run of about 10, 15 years of sales, a large account management, relationship management. And, and, I, and I, I managed a lot of people. And at the same time, uh, I had customers that I was responsible for. I, I was basically their voice back to the organization. And... Um, my heart was really with them. I always felt like they never had a seat at the table and I kind of felt responsible to be there at the table for them because most executive teams didn't always put that customer front. <laughs> right. So, uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. So I did that um, for quite a while. And then I, I went to work for a company. I, I had my third child transitioning into uh, working after coaching part-time, working back full-time, I went to work for a company where now I wasn't in the sales side of the business, but I was really in the service side of the business. So it was all about, it was account management, but was almost fully focused on making sure we retain that customer and being the voice for the customer. And I loved that role. I loved it a lot. Uh, I loved it because of the, the interaction I have with the customer, the trust that they had in me, um, and just, I don't know, just developing that deep bond with them is just it's something, a knack mm. that I had and I loved. Um, and then after I uh, went that route, so I was there for about four and a half years, and I saw that I was a little frustrated because I felt like I couldn't um, kind of control the, and, and um, I guess, outline or the customer experience in a way that I wanted it to be because I had a certain ownership in one area but not in another area. So I took a role at another company. It was a software company. And I was leading customer experience at that company. The reason why I took it is because I was leading the entire customer experience journey. And right. I liked having that full, you know, right, 30,000 foot view. And I could, I could manage what that looked like for the entire team. So it was, that was really cool. Um, but I knew early on that it was going to be a merged environment. They were going to a merger. It was actually a company that had been in business for 25 years. But they were not a tech company. But there, there was a private equity firm that came in and bought them and four other companies. The other four were tech companies. And their goal was to use the customer base of the existing co company that did, was not a tech company and turn it into a product that was digital. So it was interesting. 
I'm sure you can imagine um, <laughs> in that situation. Uh, but I knew it was kind of, you know, it was a risk, but I wanted to take it anyway. So in that merged environment, though, the culture started to go downhill real fast. People all over, because the, there was a, um, one of the locations in Australia, and there were ones in different parts in the U.S., and no one knew each other. No one trusted each other. Like, they were put in these roles, and they were like, well, this person seems to be in my space. I don't know what they're doing. No one trusted, <laughs> and they were all kind of fearful. Have you ever heard of that before? Oh my God, I have definitely lived through that. <laughs> it's one of the reasons why I'm an entrepreneur and not part of corporate life. Yes, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a very uncomfortable situation. So in that situation, oh boy, there was so much change that happened and I was a part of, the change was happening to me and to everyone else and that was okay. I was kind of going with the flow with a lot of it. Uh, but in that, like during that time, about a year and a half, people were coming to me going, what's going on? And why is my manager not saying this and what's going on? And I, I've always been that kind of sounding board and place for not just people in my team, but outside of my team. So I went to head of HR and I said, listen, we have got to do something about our engagement. I, we just, no one trusts anybody. And she says, you know what? You are so right. You should go do something about that. And I went, what? <laughs> you just got yourself an assignment, girlfriend. <laughs> I, like, I, like, ah, ah, I lead customer experience. But then she said, you know, but you're the one who's always uplifting people. You're kind of the culture bearer here anyway. Right. You're already the one who already is, like people are coming to you. So you just, let's do this. So I did it. And it was going well. It was, we were in it for about six months and brought, bringing all the different people together, letting, you know, enlisting their ideas on how we can bring people closer. And the trust was building. But here's what happened. The merger did not go well. They hired so many people. Uh, they hired a lot of very high-paid people from, like, Oracle to come into this pretty much virtual startup. And they laid off the CEO and the head of sales, and I knew I had to be on that list. There were about 200 of us in, in total oh, that were laid wow. off from the company. Um, but it was in that instance, like right there for me, where I realized this is what I need to be doing. Someone's got to do it. Someone's got to be the voice for the employees. Someone's got to advocate back to the executive leadership team. Someone's got to take action on, on behalf of the people that drive the bus forward. Well, so I love the term culture I bearer. I, I think that's the, that's the title of your next book. <laughs> oh, I like that. <laughs> you heard it here. That's nice. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm, work, I'm working on my next book now. That's not the title, but you know what? You know, there could be some potential in some of that. <laughs> there you go. So, so tell me how you got from from that amazing set of experiences, and what an incredible journey from law school, you know, to practicing law through all of that. I mean, I can see how your background benefited every single one of those things um, that that you. Uh, got your fingers in, you know, essentially, but how did you get to the place where you decided you actually needed to put this in book form? Cause writing a book is not for the faint of heart. I will just tell you, you know, I mean, I, I went through it last year, published my first book. Um, what got you to this place? And, and clearly I was going to ask if you'd ever do it again. And the answer must be yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I see it as a way to evangelize that message. I, I think that if I can change the mind of just one leader, uh, then I've been successful in my, in my venture. So um, I just felt like it was one more medium. For example, I have a podcast, that Leadership with Heart podcast, and every single piece of that journey is just another way to hopefully touch the mind of one leader that I can change how they treat their people, how they think of their leadership power. So that's you know the reason for it. Um, one of the things I didn't really touch on going way back in the background is I experienced as a young child, I'm from interracial, interfaith marriage, 
and I experienced a lot of rejection inside of my own family. And I felt like I didn't have a voice. I felt like I was kind of powerless to a lot of the things that were happening to me. And so it made me become this natural advocate, hence why I went to law school. I just it naturally became the person who wanted to be the voice for others. So that's wow. kind of the very the crux of why I do the work I do. And then it just this other thing was like the catalyst to make me push in that direction. So the book is just one more thing, and so is the podcast. I'll continue to evangelize until you know, like I die in, in that case. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I love the way that you've structured the book. And you know, I've got this analytical mind, uh, you know, that even though I'm also a creative there's something about that structure that appeals to me. So you have segregated your book into discussions about these seven laws. And I love it that you call them intuitive because they should be intuitive, by the way. Right? <laughs> and, and the reason you have to write the book about these intuitive laws is because people don't do them, right? And they don't yeah. ensure that these are the components. And so you begin the book talking about the importance of great supportive managers. And again, that is a duh. Yeah, well, of course. But what can companies do to actually give their people great supportive managers? Can't I mean, do you post on LinkedIn looking for great supportive managers? <laughs> I do think that, you know, right, we, we are talking about bringing the right people on the bus. So first is bringing the right people onto the team, into the organization, and by asking lots of behavioral questions that help to reveal how they may respond in certain situations so you can know if they are going to be supportive, if they are going to be more transparent and honest with their people, if they're going to care about people before themselves in a lot of cases. Um, so those are going to be the things you'll do. And then once you have them there, let's say you have the people in there and they're, and they're doing great in their role. They may not be management material, but usually you can see a leader, like a leader shining without a title all day, right? I was just talking yeah. to someone about this the other day, where you, this particular person, he's not even trying to be a titled leader, but it's obvious that people already follow him because of how he carries himself and, and, the, right. and the, uh, the advocacy he is for his company, right? So I think some of these things become really obvious. Don't force a round you know, circle into that square peg into that leadership role just because you that's the next person that's been there longest. You might want to interview them. You want to find out if it's something they actually want. They may not want it. They may want to just continue to grow in their certain role that they're in. Well, and I also find it interesting. You you have kind of interchangeably used the word leader and manager. And mm -hmm. I happen to be a great leader right? I am a great leader, not, not just a supportive leader. I'm a great leader. And because I was born with those characteristics, right? Mm -hmm. I am a horrible manager, right? A, a manager yes. of people, right? I can, I can lead leaders, but I am not good at managing the rank and file, right? And I believe that we do throw those two words in the same pile uh, quite often. And it may be why we think that by hiring this person who's a great leader, uh, uh, again, at the 40,000 foot level, and then they're mm -hmm. miserable at managing at the 10,000 foot level. Absolutely. I definitely think that there, you know, there's the levels of, of um, I, I do interchange them because I, I think that managers are a, um, I think it's a it's an it's a really 
it's looked at very negatively. Uh, managers, the word manager is looked at very negatively. And I think that we can restore the faith in that. And I do think that great managers can be great leaders. And that is why I use them like that. I have kind of like a Pollyanna view of things because <laughs> I think that there's, right, I do. And, and that's okay. I'm, I'm actually totally fine with that. That's how I think, that's how I set out to change the world is to have that positive view about what people's potential is and what organizations' right. potentials are. Uh, and so because I have that view, I'm able to help them change it because I can see what their potential is versus putting them Perfect. in one place or another. So that's well, kind of I my lens <laughs> of it. Um, so one of the things that supportive managers do best is employee recognition. And you point out that recognizing your employees often is, is a really critical part of this pie. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's, it's interesting. There was some stat out there, I want to say it was Business Insider put it up there, that 78% of employees uh, leave their organizations because of a lack of appreciation. That's a mm -hmm. huge number. That says to me, and it should say to all organizations, that we have to get this right. That we, and, and the other stat out there from Gallup is that employees need recognition every seven days. So that if they have not been recognized every seven days, they, it's as if you have never recognized them. Wow. That's also scary because who the heck has time, particularly if your team is big, to be thinking about, did I recognize this person this week? So mm. there, are, there are systems, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, um, there's a way to, I call it crowdsource recognition, where you think of different levels of recognition by different people or different sources so that you can feed that need, that kind of dopamine boost that they need on a more frequent basis. Right. But yeah, so recognition is huge. I mean, just think of it for yourself. When you were at the organizations, when you were in corporate America, I bet you it was the ones, the organizations that did make you feel like you were valued and appreciated for the work you do that made you feel more connected to what it was they were they had going on there, right? And to the work oh, you were doing. Definitely. Well, and you know, again, when I think of back to my corporate experiences, uh, it's really law three, I think, where the organizations were able to feed me, right? Uh, which is give them a voice and do something about it. It's kind of like when when you mentioned the problem to the woman and she's like, well, go do something about it, right? Um, and I was the one who was always pointing out things that, that uh, perhaps were being done in a status quo way and they needed to think of something different. And again, I always got that blank sheet of paper and that's mm. how I was able to thrive in corporate life when I really was always a serial entrepreneur, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, allowing people to actually have a voice in how things are being done rather than just taking orders, right, is an important yeah. thing. Absolutely. I mean, enlisting uh, people's voices, when you think back of, like as a baby in a crib, and the baby's the coos, just from the very beginning makes noises, and their parents come, and they're like, oh, and they're like, oh, someone listen to me, someone heard me. <laughs> and, but then there are those times that parents go, I'm going to let them cry it out. Right. I'm not coming. And that phase, like, my voice, darn it, is not, and what's going on? You can't hear me? And in the baby world, you know, for those of us that have children, it's a good thing when they stop crying after we let them cry and then they go back to sleep. Right. But that doesn't work that way for employees. If, we, if, we, <laughs> if, we, if they're crying out, right, their voices, and we do right. not respond, and they stop crying, that's apathy. That's scary. Because then right. they're going to start to infiltrate other people inside the team. 
So it benefits the organization to listen very closely, very consistently, and have a process for doing so, and then acting on it. Goodness, right. please, do not listen if you are not going to act in some way. Exactly. It, that drives me nuts. It, it drives well, employees nuts. That's why, they, that's why they hate surveys. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, and, and it seems like if uh, these are all building on one another, because if you're not doing number three, you can't do number four, which is growing and promoting their talents. How in the world would you know how they needed to grow if you didn't listen to them? Absolutely. That's so true. I, I actually believe that the voice is actually the fundamental side of all of it, because if you just, if you're not listening, you're just not going to know if the manager is being supported enough. You're not going to know anything. Are you, are you being, are you recognizing them enough? You have to be listening first. But when you, when you move on to the growing and the promoting their talent, when I've looked at, I've looked at thousands of employee engagement survey comments, this is the work that I do on the voice, the employee program side. And when I look at these comments, the majority of them are like, listen, I don't feel like I have a place to move forward to from here. Like I'm in my role and nothing has been made clear for me. So the organizations that listen first to make sure they know where, like just from the very beginning, from the get-go, where it is they want their, um, they want to go in the organization and in their career long-term, then they can set up these like listening posts and milestones every, you know, 90 days or whatever to make sure that they're meeting that employee's needs if they really Mm -hmm. want to keep them. Right. Because we are talking about loyalty here. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, one of, although I don't actively uh, consult anymore uh, for the last 22 years, I have had a consulting firm. And one of my favorite things to do uh, with a company, you know, and I would go in, I was not hired for anything on the culture side. I was hired all about innovation and growth. But my favorite thing to do is I had a, a an exercise that we'd put butcher block paper on the wall And down the left-hand side, we would write, uh, do well, do badly, and never tried. And across the top, love and hate. And so then you would give everybody a pack of sticky notes and all the things that needed to be done within a department or within a company, right? Everybody get the same pack of sticky notes and they would have, they'd put their initials on it and then they would put it up on the board. So I either love it and do it well right? I do it mm-hmm. well, but I hate it, right? And, and they would place it. And then ideally, if you've got multiple levels represented, then you have the managers come in and say, they, they look at the observation, right? Somebody thinks that they don't do something well, right? You, you might actually exactly. move that up and use that to encourage them. But, but that's one of the things that I've done um, to realize that sometimes people are in the wrong job because they do it so well, but they hate it. Right. And, and you, you never find that out unless you listen and then you can put them in the right jobs. Um, One of the other things I want to just comment on while we're talking about this particular topic is uh, that people get slotted uh, again because of their background and their experience. And I recently started up a new company And uh, when I put titles against people, uh, I put a title a year ago on a couple of individuals and then realized about three months ago that they were the wrong titles for what, where their talents really lied. So I I ended up uh, adjusting and, and moving people around and 
you know, actually creating the titles and the roles that fit the talents, which I, I know in larger organizations, it's tough to do that because you've got you oh, know, yeah. that you have to deal with. But anyway, uh, that's just some of my experience in that promoting their talents and growing people. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I think that's a, that's a, that was smart on your part. I always talk about emotional intelligence and it takes someone with a high amount of emotional intelligence to, be, to think that through and to realize and to, right. then to make the change. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But it takes you again to your next law, which is uh, the importance of fostering deep connection with people and, and not just be at that surface level that it's so easy to stay at. Absolutely. Well, when I'm thinking about the um, deep connections, I'm talking about connections definitely within, like with your, with the manager, with the direct supervisor, connections with the executive leadership team, connections with your coworkers, and connections with the mission and vision of the organization. So, you know, being very purposeful in how we set up and create the connections that are there. Um, here's an example. I had was working in an organization and happened to be a, uh, a government, like a local government organization, and I was doing an employee focus group with a set of folks that were in a um, human services field, let's say. And one of the people, I was talking to them about, you know, how, what are their perceptions of their managers? And one of the persons said, uh, you know, it's really hard because I like to go and talk to my coworker that's in the same large department, but in a different unit. And every time I go over there, their manager gives me like the evil eye, like they don't want us to interact or talk. <laughs> And the team member said, yeah, I always feel like I want to talk to my coworkers on the other side, but I always feel kind of siloed and, and I... just restricted from doing so. And I thought that was just a travesty. Like, really, what, what are you losing by letting these coworkers, these team members that are in the same department, by the way, not in the same unit, the same department, what are you losing by not allowing them to interact and build relationships with each other? Uh, what is it that you're afraid of? Because in the end, you are losing a whole lot. Oh, yeah. Productivity. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's how they want to leave because they have no connection to the people that they work with. You're exactly. not letting them do that. So, well, and what you're happens, losing you know, is the opportunity for teamwork. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think even when we look at like that connection, when you start talking about like the mission and the vision, they're like all over the walls and on the papers. If people don't really feel like they're living it or that the work they do is connecting to that or that the executive team is living that. I mean, there's all these different ways, right, that we can yeah. think about this connection idea. Um, they're not going to stay. And so or, those organizations that really are purposeful and focused on, make, on creating the connections, breaking down the silos, reducing the walls and the cubicles, doing all kinds of things that promote that connection. Uh, the, people stay because of the people they work with in a lot of cases. Right. 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 So that's kind of the key there. Well, it's interesting because the next law is, is about teamwork and making teamwork the focus. And I, I'm remembering, a, it was actually quite a long time ago, I was at a division of American Airlines, which at the time was called Sabre, and now that's a separate company. But when I was there, uh, you know, we, we had the traditional organizational lines in, in sales and service and, you know, service was broken into the uh, installations and customer support and the various stages uh, of customer support. And during the time that I was there, I wasn't a part of the group, but they took, they broke down those organizational lines and created regional units. So there was uh, a unit that dealt with the customers in the Southeast. And they did everything from sales all the way through to service. And they sat in a physical area. 
And I, I don't know if they're wow. still organized that way, but it was an amazing experiment because uh, there was just a sense of ownership in that teamwork that hadn't existed before when they all reported up to different people. Huh. Yeah. And that there is when you, cause that's, they provided more alignment and unity. Yeah. That's important to do that. I think, I, I think because we can't always put our finger on maybe the RRI on some of this stuff, it's not, not always, sometimes if we really are purposeful. We could, by the way, but <laughs> right. most organizations aren't sitting around focusing on that. So they think there's no RRI for doing these things, but I can guarantee you there's huge amounts. And, and my thing is I try to talk to HR since they're mostly my clients and say, listen, we have to focus on, pointing the engagement, the retention, uh, the cost to acquire, the, the cost to develop employees, all of those things. We need to try to tie a lot of these numbers back to other business numbers that the executive team had actually, and, and, our, and our board of directors and the shareholders have their eyes on. We want to be able to connect this. And, and often it doesn't happen. It's like they're, they're, they're not focused on the right numbers and they're not focused on the things that drive, that the, that the senior leadership team, the executive leadership team and the board is focused on. So then it's not as relevant to them. But if you can right. show a tie-in to it, yeah. you know, then it's relevant. Yeah. And so what I was going to chime in with is that we've all heard the, the statement, and I may not get this quite right, but um, what gets rewarded gets repeated and what gets measured gets accomplished. And yeah. so how can you make teamwork the focus if there's no reward working together and quite often the reward structure is rewarding the individual contributor and that's so funny because that's obviously what i mentioned in my book it's the idea of creating more of a team off. incentive program yeah so you hit the nail on the head that having um having some kind of team reward this can be incentive from a financial perspective it could be just a recognition for for great uh cross-functional teamwork uh, where it's an award uh, recognition, but not something that's necessarily, you know, compensation. But there's different ways that you can do that. But you're right. There has to be, it can't be just about individual. Individual is important, but innovation happens inside of teams. Exactly. exactly. So that's why we have to reward the team efforts. So, yeah, I agree with you 100%. Yeah. Organizations well, have to focus on that. And law number seven, which uh, rounds out uh, the seven intuitive laws of employee loyalty is to pay them equitably. And I've got to tell you, having, you know, just been involved uh, over the last 18 months of building my company, and we're actually not at the point yet where, where we're able to pay anyone, right? So mm -hmm. not, yep. not paying them equitably, actually not paying them at all, right? Everybody's <laughs> yeah. just, they're working, uh, you know, kind of, I call them my all volunteer band, but you know, what, what they are is in, in the early stage company parlance is their sweat equity, uh, uh, employees and, and they're, you know, co-founders of the company in many cases. So I find in my own world right now that while I'm trying to build an amazing company culture, I can't complete the job. I can't even roll out the right programs to work with them because until they're paid, you know, I don't have their hearts and minds, right? I, I, I've got a piece of them, right? So yeah. I, I recognize in spades how important paying people, period, is. But paying them equitably <laughs> is also super important. So talk to me a little bit about the components of this law. So 
obviously the pay is important. Like we all have to eat. And so paying and equity is kind of the base. It's a foundational thing. Like I'm just making that statement, but in the end, pay is number seven purposefully. So the management kind of the leaders in the beginning are the, are purposefully done. I put the first law where it's at for a reason and the last law where it's at and anything in between really can move around depending on the organization. But the last one, pay is pretty much always that case. There are people who are 100% motivated by money, and so to, to that extent, and there's a small percentage, those people, money will always be the driver for them, but it's a small percentage. It's, here's what it is. If you don't give them great managers, and they're not supportive, and they're not transparent, and they can't trust them, and they're not looking out for them, money won't matter. If they don't feel appreciated for work they do, money won't matter. Right. If you aren't growing and promoting them, money won't matter. So you see where I'm going with this. You have to do all those other steps first, and pay can be less of an issue if you do all those other things beautifully. So that's the point of that chapter. Right, right. So Heather, when you wrote this book, what what did you want people to walk away with? What, you know, I mean, obviously there are seven things you want them to, to really take into their organizations, but what was the best possible outcome that you saw in someone picking up this book? The, the, the biggest takeaway, I guess, from my message that I do, that I put in my books, on a podcast, in my talks, anything, it is that employee experience is driven about 90% by emotions. And that organizational leaders get to choose which emotions they unleash from within the people they lead. Mm. They get to do that by their actions or their inactions, what they choose to do, what they choose not to do, what they choose to invest in or not to invest in. So when they read through this book, they'll see, wow. This doesn't have to cost a lot of money. This has to, though, be a focus. You have to care first, you have to prioritize it second, and you have to go do it. Mm. Well, I absolutely love that. And, and the simplicity of that message is, is actually the richness, uh, you know, of what people can get out of this book. And, you know, again, we have been talking today with the author of a book called The Seven Intuitive Laws of Employee Loyalty, Fascinating Truths About What It Takes to Create Truly Loyal and Engaged Employees. Heather, can you tell folks how they can best uh, get in touch with you, follow you? I know you, you do coaching and, and consulting and you do public speaking. How can they find you? I would say the best way to find me would be on LinkedIn, and I'm under just uh, Heather Younger. You should be able to find me pretty quickly. Uh, and then otherwise, if you needed to email me, you could just email me at my email, heather at customerfanatics.com. And fanatics is with an X, right? Yes, it's an I-X versus an I-C-S. Got it. Got it. Well, Heather, this has been absolutely fascinating. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like I'm just heading to the, the phase where I can actually embrace all of your laws when we're going to be able to, uh, you know, have, have our paid staff and really start building the culture of the company. So I so appreciate you being with us today and uh, I hope you have a marvelous weekend and a great holiday. Thank you. You too. It's been great. All right. Take care, Heather. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Game Changer. Ideas. Inspiration. Innovation. With Chickie Fitzgerald. Thank you.